welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, the only show that takes a look at the obstacles and opportunities open to small to mid-sized enterprises that manufacture here in America. Brought to you by All Metals and Forge Group, with your hosts, Tim Grady and Lou Wise. Welcome, everyone, back to Manufacturing Talk Radio. We're glad to have you listening to us. I'm here with my co-host, Lou Weiss, and we have a guest on today who ought to give you a few chuckles about the economy. Uh, an economist who can uh, elicit uh, humor is a rare commodity, and we're going to enjoy having you on the show. Before we get there, uh, Lou, you've got a couple of comments you want to make from last week's show and what's happening in the news. Well, first, I'd like to say uh Good morning, good afternoon to everybody, and uh, I hope West Coast is uh, alive and awake, uh, and I have a few words about West Coasters in just a moment. Uh, our postscript uh, regarding our last week's show, uh, we had Brad Holcomb, who's the uh, committee chair for the uh, uh, report on business from the Institute of Supply Management, along with Tony Nieves, who is the non-manufacturing uh, chair for the same uh, report. Uh, it was a very interesting show. Uh, the numbers just keep on going up and getting better and better, and I'm sure we're going to hear some of that from Chris. Um, the uh, 58 straight months that the um, uh, PMI has been over uh, 50, uh, and actually, last month the number was 58.7, which was just three tenths of a point less than the high for the year, which was uh, 59.0. So, um, Chris, not to steal your thunder, I, I hope that the report you're going to be giving today is going to show the same thing. We don't like to see much conflict in, in our numbers. Uh, news um, not to beat a dying horse, but. The Los Angeles and West Coast port issue is slowly becoming a debacle, and uh, there seems to be no real progress. Uh, the government uh, is not getting involved. Uh, Obama is off to Hawaii, and the rest of us uh, will suffer the financial consequences from the uh, overpaid, overbenefited, overarrogant unions of 20,000 dock workers, 29 West Coast ports, both parties are um, not, they're both uh, abiding by a total news blackout of the talks and the issues. Um, my question is why, and why isn't uh, Obama doing something about this? And, uh, you know, in talking to our customers at All Metals and Forge Group, uh, most of them don't even know about this. And the ones that do know very sketchy uh, information. And uh, I, I think it's uh, on the 23rd of December, uh, we are doing a show, a 90-minute show, uh, about the port issue. And what they're not talking about, we will be talking about. So that being said... Chris, welcome. Thank you very much. I'd like to introduce Dr. Chris Keel, who serves oh, as an economic analyst for uh, Fabricators and Manufacturers Association International. Lou and I were out at uh, FMA, out at Fabtech uh, in Atlanta, and that's where we met Chris. Uh, one of his major roles is writing an economic e-newsletter uh, titled Fabronomics for uh, FMA. And that goes out to their 2,300 members. He's also the managing director for Armada Corporate Intelligence, where he works with clients worldwide, including uh, YRC Freight, Trans Systems, Kansas City Southern Railroad, CBiz, and many others. Chris, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. My pleasure to be here. Well, we're certainly glad to have you. Feel free to uh, uh, tell the world uh, for 2015 what uh, GDP is going to look like next year, because it's been pretty good this year, and hopefully the port situation won't cause a negative GDP in the first quarter like the snowstorm did last first quarter. Yeah, let's hope we don't have a repeat of that. Before I get too far into this, one really must remember that the definition of an economist is somebody who explains tomorrow why the predictions they made yesterday didn't come true today. Uh, so we will... <laughs> 
ever be grateful for the existence of meteorologists because they kind of make us look better than we actually are. So now that I've lowered expectations enough, um, I think <laughs> we're looking for a pretty good year. Uh, we're coming off a pretty good year. We finished, of course, a lot stronger than we started. And when you go back to that first quarter, it was really pretty instructive in terms of, of what happened and, and how difficult it can be sometimes to really identify what the culprit is in, a, in an economic slowdown. If you go back that far, you remember that the media jumped all over the weather. I mean, it was snowmageddon. It was the polar vortex. You know, it was the recession brought to you by Jim Cantore. And the more that we looked at it, the more we thought, you know, this makes very little sense. It's not like the Northeast doesn't get cold every year. It isn't like we don't see snow every year. Yes, it was a little more dramatic last year than previous years, but still, you know, Los Angeles, it wasn't snowing. It was still warm in Texas. I mean, you know, the majority of the country was behaving as it always had. What we really realized a couple months into the year was that the big culprit was exports. We had seen a dramatic drop in exports, something around 9%. That took the real kind of guts out of the economy, and then you combine that with some bad weather, and you have a negative first quarter. The point of bringing that up is that that will be our weakness in next year's economy. If we're going to have anything that will throw us back into a, a, a damaging retreat, it'll probably be promoted by something overseas. We're seeing a little bit of that now simply because of the overseas impact on the oil markets. Uh, we're basically getting back to a demand for oil that is fairly familiar. We're back up to numbers that we might have had eight or nine years ago. The rest of the world is really not buying much oil, particularly Europe, but even China, and that's part of why the oil price is collapsing. So we're going to be paying a lot of attention to how bad it gets in Europe. We're going to be paying a lot of attention to whether or not the Asian economies recover. We're going to be trying to figure out if the emerging markets are going to reemerge, and that will be what will determine whether we have a mediocre 2015 or a good 2015. Now you say, Chris, that the uh, European markets aren't buying much oil. Uh, do, do they have the opportunity to not buy much oil? What's happening there that their oil demand is down? Basically, there's just no activity in Europe these days. Their manufacturing sector is in terrible shape. You mentioned at the top of the show that the PMI numbers in the U.S. have been looking very good. We were up to 59-something. A month or so ago, we're at 58 now. We're probably going to be close to that at the end of this month. Contrast that to the Eurozone, which was at 50.1. France is in the 49s. Italy is in the 49s. Spain is in the 40s. Most of the countries of the Eurozone are struggling. Even Germany is barely hanging on to about a 51.2 or 0.3 PMI. There just is nothing happening there. Uh, this is a market that depends on itself, and if Germany can't effectively sell to the other European countries, it can't make up the difference by selling outside Europe. So it's it's a decline in activity. The consumer markets are shot. The retail season is not shaping up very well uh, in Europe, no big surprise. Unemployment in the Eurozone is over 12%. All of that just adds up to uh, another recession. I mean, Europe is in the process of going through its third recession in five years, and it just doesn't think, doesn't seem to have much of a, an outlet for all of this. And I see that Russia is not doing well of late also. No, Russia's interest rates went up to 17% today. They are so worried about the ruble collapse that, you know, just – Consider that for a minute. You know, we're we're trying to figure out if we can survive if the Fed raises the fund rate by a quarter of a point. What will we do? The interest rates are half a point. In Russia, they just hit 17%. The last time our rates were even close to that was during the 1980s when Paul Volcker decided to kill inflation in 30 minutes by raising the interest rates to 18%. Wow. And it, it appears that the dollar is gaining against all major world currencies at this point. 
Yeah, very definitely. The only game in town, really, for an investor is the U.S., and so it's making us very popular. Uh, it's not that we're you know firing on all cylinders, but compared to the rest of the countries in the world, we're it. And so the dollar is gaining against the euro, it's gaining against the yen. I mean, the Japanese have been pursuing policies that have been crushing the yen, and they're doing it deliberately. They're trying to reignite their export market. No other real currency can compete with us beyond those. I mean, the pound in England is kind of holding its own, but it's not the world currency that it once was. So the U.S. is going to be looking at a steadily rising dollar values. The good news is that we're coming off a really low period for the dollar. So, again, we're not into those years like in the 80s when the dollar was so high that it absolutely destroyed manufacturing. It's going to rise. It's going to make it tougher to sell overseas. We're not going to have the currency advantage, but we will still maintain quality advantage and marketing advantage and all those things. It's just going to get a little bit tougher uh, to sell things overseas. And you expect the Fed to begin to hike uh, rates? Very definitely. Uh, You're hearing all of the right sounds. This is going to be an interesting week because for those out there who are just ardent Fed watchers, and we know who you are, tomorrow is the day where you listen for one word. If the Fed says the word considerable, you know the rates are going to stay down for six months. If they do not use the word considerable, rates could go up at any moment. Um, This has become kind of a code within Fed speak, that if they say they're going to wait a considerable time, that means six months. And if they don't use that term, it means that the rates could go up even before six months. So if they say considerable, we're at least looking for June or July. I think either way, we're probably looking at end of second quarter, first part of third, uh, that they would start to raise rates, but incrementally. Uh, One of the key things next year is that the decision-making group for the Fed, the Open Market Committee, is only going to have one hawk on that committee, Jeff Lacker from Richmond. The other members are all doves, and they're likely to be pushing to keep rates lower longer. Let me ask you, Chris, uh, two questions. One is of little value or importance. How many years of college education did it take for you to come up with the word considerable? <laughs> Not only do you have to have extensive college experience, but you have got to have been a banker and, and a Fed banker at that, so that every uh, word you utter has import. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for sharing, sharing that. Um, a question that I have uh, going back about uh, uh, two, three minutes ago, you were talking about how terrible everybody is doing around the world. Uh, except for us. Um, How do we keep the ball up in the air when uh, our global partners are all suffering uh, uh, a severe flu, economic flu? It comes down to the fact that the American consumer cannot stand to have money in their pocket. I mean, it's just we are an aggressive consuming country, and It always amuses me when I hear other economists talking about the potential for deflation in the U.S. economy, because this comes when people are anticipating low prices and they're not going to buy because things will get cheaper. Americans can wait for about a minute and a half, and then if they go any further than that, it's like, I want it now. I mean, instant gratification is not fast enough. So we spent. I mean, if we get any kind of a break, we've seen it this fall with Christmas sales going up. All it took was cheaper gasoline, and people were like, awesome, gas is two forty-eight a gallon. I'm going to buy a boat. And it's like, you are not. But suddenly people feel like they have more to spend, and they spend it. We put ourselves in debt more than any country in the world. Uh, we are basically the perfect foil for an industry that, needs to sell stuff. And as long as the U.S. consumer is hungry, we not only support our own industries, but we support most of the world because we're the ones that buy all the imports. It's almost like being un-American not to spend money. 
it is an American cinema. It's actually in the Constitution. Very few people realize that. <laughs> now, I understand, however, that there's no commodity inflation to speak of, and, and of course, not much in the way of wage inflation. How are we going to keep up with this? Well, in some respects, this is one of the ironies of having changed our relationship to oil, because we were, for a very long time, a purely consuming country. We, as recently as 2006, we were importing 65% of the crude that we needed for refining purposes. Now that's under 10% and falling, and so we're not as ecstatic about low oil prices as we would have been if all of this was being hammered home in the Saudi markets, not here. But the fact is that having low commodity prices generally can be a benefit to the U.S. because we actually buy more of this stuff than we sell. It's also good news that the commodities that we traditionally depend on tend to be volatile anyway. I mean, we spend an awful lot of our export energy on shipping food, and this year... It hasn't been good for the farmers because the weather was perfect and the harvests were great. And now there's too much stuff on the market. The price has dropped. Long-range weather forecasts, which have about as much validity as long-range economic forecasts, are calling for a little more challenging spring. And it should actually have an impact on the price of corn and wheat and that sort of things, which will benefit the U.S., and we'll end up making more money from our farm commodities than we do now. On the other hand, we're shipping a lot of it because people around the world are taking advantage of the fact that the stuff from the U.S. is cheap, and and so it's been good for transportation. It's been good for the rail sector. It's been good for barges, anybody that ships grain. So, and, so Chris, uh, roughly 10% of the GDP is our exports, and uh, 16% is our imports. Uh, where's the 10% got to have to go uh, to keep the ball up in the air? You know, I think going forward, we're kind of shifting a bit in terms of what we export and import. We used to export almost exclusively kind of commodity agricultural stuff in some respects we almost behaved like a, a third world country in that regards we had lost a lot of our manufacturing soul at some point and it was difficult getting it back now that we have seen a recovery of manufacturing that's a big part of what we export and and that's picking up more of that percentage every year right now the estimate is about 35 to 40 percent of all of our exports are manufactured goods and that's almost twice what it was even a decade and a half ago. So it varies from year to year. Uh, Boeing has a habit of completely throwing data off from one month to the next. If you watch durable goods numbers, they'll be bumping along, doing nothing, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, my God, we grew like 70% because Boeing sold 27 planes. <laughs> so it's one of those things where you sort of have to pull that out when you're looking at things like durable goods, but if you're looking at the impact on our exports, I mean, Boeing all by itself accounts for almost, I think it's 8 or 9% of our total GDP exports. So, so that's a huge a number. Well. Yeah, it's a huge number. I mean, it's, it's one of those things that we all know it's important, but, you know, it's not like any of us own a Boeing. You know, so it's like we're aware that there's a lot of them up there but then we start to look at the numbers going, holy cow. I mean, I think Southwest just placed an order for 180 or some such thing. So, so all Somebody they have to do now is be, is be able to get them out through our right. West Coast ports. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And the interesting thing about, and this is, as you mentioned, is sort of a news blackout. This is something that has been, a chronic issue whenever those negotiations take place as both sides clam up. The few commentators that have tried to venture a guess on what's going to happen with the ports report three things that make them feel a little less concerned than they might ordinarily be. One is that it's unlike the previous strike situations, it's really difficult to see 
where either side gains from a strike. Um, in previous years, you could kind of figure out that this was going to be good for the shippers or it was going to be good for the union and that they had some reason to push it. This particular time, it doesn't seem to be good for either side. And so that that could allow cooler heads to prevail. The second commentator's, I guess, assessment of this was that, and this was someone from the Journal of Commerce, was looking at this saying that the last he saw of the negotiations from both sides prior to this blackout, they were not that far apart, that they were mostly talking at this stage about pay rather than talking about job security, because that's always been what has separated the shippers from the union, is the shippers want to introduce technology and not have so much manual labor, and of course the union is protecting every index card-wielding dock person they can. And then the third thing that was mentioned, and you mentioned it, was that there was no hint that the government was going to to get engaged. And given the current administration, the shippers would be very uneasy about a government intervention because they would assume that it would be more pro-union than pro-shipper. So the fact that the administration is not participating has sent a signal to the unions that, well, don't look to us for help. Those are kind of weak key arguments, and and they could all three be proved wrong. But these guys, at least the Journal of Commerce guys and a couple of the other West Coast port reporters, feel like this was going to be a few wildcat strikes, a few demonstrative moves, and then they come to an agreement sooner than later. They'll definitely go past the deadline, but they always do. Uh, Chris, one of the one of the issues that uh, I've been hearing also is about the fact that uh, because of the, the Cadillac healthcare program mm-hmm. that the uh, union has, that there's a $150 million surcharge that's going to uh, be attached to the uh, 20,000 dock workers who don't want to pay it. Right. They they do pay a one dollar copay on their drugs, so we're thankful for that. Uh, but the uh, surcharge is something that obviously Obama and the administration don't want, does not want to deal with, because that's, that's right. just another arrow in the heart of Obamacare, uh, another legacy arrow, if you will. Uh, so th- there there are a lot of there are a lot of issues, um, probably five or six of them, including and, and I'll just share with you one more, which I'm sure you're aware of, but some of you, some of our listeners may not be, because of the low uh, volume of unloading uh, uh, the containers, the truckers are not going to the ports. They're, they've decided to uh, go elsewhere and uh, ship potatoes at a lower cost, at a lower uh, revenue to them. Uh, and the railroads aren't going out to the West Coast either because there's nothing there for them to pick up. So this is such a multifaceted issue uh, that they're claiming it's going to take, once a contract is signed, it's going to take two to three months uh, and I hope I hope that that's more rumor than anything else. It's going to take two to three months for the port to come back to quote unquote normal. Um, I think that's probably true. The one thing that also has got some of the commentators a little less than panicked is that this has been a flax shipping season, and in contrast to the 2002 debacle, which was where. The ports were jammed to the hills. You had ships waiting offshore. You had cargo operations overseas backed up for weeks because they couldn't leave. They couldn't start sailing. This has been a slow shipping season. And and whether it's the cargo ships or, I mean, the Baltic Dry Index was showing that there's been a real dearth of, of even bulk commodities being shipped. It's just been a slow season. And that's another thing that kind of reminds the shippers and the unions. It's like, guys, (laughs) there are other ways to get things into the U.S. than through the California ports. And some of the rail companies, for example, have been pointing at the effectiveness of Lazaro Cardenas in, in Mexico and some of the Canadian ports and 
putting more things. I mean, the opening of the Panama Canal opens up the Gulf ports and the East Coast ports. Part of, I think, where the, the tension is is that there's a recognition by both shippers and unions that Long Beach, L.A. may have peaked and, and that companies in the future are looking at all kinds of alternatives. There has been a whole new opening. I mean, this is crazy, but the Northwest Passage now exists. There's been enough ice melt in the northern part of Canada that you can now ship directly from Asia across the Arctic into the Atlantic, and all of a sudden, like, who needs the California ports? So there may be some really big issues at stake in terms of, of shifting. As we all know, the logistics industry, it's, it's like water. It follows the path of least resistance. And if there's anything that gets in its way, it goes somewhere else. Well, I think we'll take a quick commercial break, Chris, and we'll come back in a couple of minutes and begin to to address some of the other issues. One is which one is what is oil going to do in 2015? Right. Let's take a quick commercial break, I'll and we'll a, be back. I'll short. have a slick response. Hey. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Manufacturing Talk Radio will be right back. All Metals and Forge Group manufactures open die forging in blocks, hubs, shafts, flanges, cylinders, gear blanks, and custom forge shapes, including seamless rolled rings in alloy, carbon, stainless and tool steels, aluminum, nickel alloys, copper and titanium for parts and assemblies in aerospace, oil and gas exploration, defense, machinery, transportation, shipbuilding, energy and power, pulp and paper, and many other industries. Visit steelforge.com or call 800-600-9290. American Crane and Equipment Corporation in Douglasville, Pennsylvania is a leader in specialized cranes, hoists, and material handling equipment for industries including aerospace, nuclear, oil and gas, transit, construction, and waste handling. Call 877-877-6778 or visit AmericanCrane.com. That's AmericanCrane.com or 877-877-6778. Welcome back to Manufacturing Talk Radio. Hello all, we're back again. Uh, and uh, Tim was uh, you were talking about uh, oil, uh, Chris. You want to give us an idea where uh, where the oil prices are going? I think at fifty seven dollars a barrel yesterday is probably not where we want to be. No, I mean it certainly isn't if you're an oil producer. I mean, what a difference a decade makes. I mean, if this was ten years ago, we would be dancing in the streets, going, "Wow!" You know, crocodile tears for the Saudis and and the other world oil producers. But now we're a producer, and we don't like to see the oil prices this low, particularly because shale oil needs prices at least at ninety bucks a barrel, preferably closer to a hundred. We're in the middle of an oil glut. It's not the first time. As a matter of fact, it's the third time that we've dealt with something like this since the late 60s. And it always comes because of the same thing. We have a surplus of oil. We have not much demand. And we have not had any one of those usual events that affect oil prices. This is not to say that this will last. Um, Traditionally, the things that will affect supply you can have some kind of political issue uh, if if Libya continues to fall apart, and at this rate it is, uh, that's going to take a big chunk of the oil production out of the system. If there are problems in Iraq, if there are problems in Saudi Arabia, worse yet, that whole area is volatile. You know, we all know that. The second thing that can affect supply is weather. Uh, we've gotten away in the last couple of years with no serious hurricanes slamming into the Gulf of Mexico. If one does, it shuts down Gulf oil production for weeks. And that's one of the things that affects supply. And then finally, you just have oil companies shutting things down. Uh, Right now, unusually, the oil producers that would normally have shut down, the Saudis, the Russians, 
they really can't afford to. They need the cash flow. And so even though the money they make is diminished, they're still producing. The other thing that can happen is demand could increase. The U.S. could start buying more oil. We could start using more oil. The Europeans could bounce back. The Chinese could bounce back. None of these are imminent, but they're all possible. I think we're probably at about the bottom when it comes to oil. You've seen just in the last week just a few reports from Libya were enough to bounce oil back up to almost $63 a barrel, then it fell back again. I think by the summer driving season, you'll start to see oil prices creep back up, uh, probably in the 70s, unless you get one of these big events that drives it back up towards 80 or 90 bucks. I think we're probably going to spend most of next year in a range between 70 and 90, somewhere in that area, and that will be comfortable for both sides. It's not going to be a big price increase at the pump but it's also going to be enough to keep the oil producers happy. Well, let's talk about manufacturing for a moment. Uh, I, I know that the uh, FMA is uh, kind of putting together their forecast, and last week we heard from the ISM, and their forecast was pretty rosy for 2015. Uh, how do you see manufacturing developing in 2015, Chris? I think it's going to be in pretty good shape. We have some sectors that have just been surprising us quarter after quarter after quarter. Automotive just will not slow down. And we have been predicting that it would now for three or four years. And after you've been wrong for three or four years, you stop trying to be wrong anymore. And <laughs> we just basically say, well, it's just astounding that Americans do love their cars. The oil change in price has had an impact on that because for a while, there was this real rush to go out and buy fuel-efficient cars, and everybody was trying to do the right thing because gas was getting expensive. Well, now that it's back down in the twos, you know, people are like, particularly males, are looking at these Priuses and going, no, I hate these little cars. I want back in my truck. I want my SUV. I mean, I once got into a Prius, and it took me three days to get out of one. Um, so <laughs> we're, I think, going to go back to the more high you know, consumption vehicles because, frankly, we like them better. Um, we're also seeing a lot of growth in the energy sector itself, uh, not only just producing for the oil companies, but for the whole infrastructure in that area. The things that we're still waiting for on the manufacturing side is that if we could get a return to commitment on infrastructure and start doing more public infrastructure, roads, bridges, that sort of thing, that is a huge, huge part of manufacturing. It is the single biggest consumer of steel, and there's an awful lot of businesses that produce for that sector, everything from the caterpillars of the world down to just the exotic machines that are used to do this kind of public sector stuff. We also may see a return to some help on the agricultural side, but that's not going to come until mid-next year. But if it runs like it has in the past, you have a bad year followed by a good year, and farmers rapidly catch up and do a lot of investing in machinery, trying to kind of, as they say, make hay while the sun shines. We're going to see a little bit of challenge on the export side, as I mentioned earlier. Um, that may be the difference between an okay manufacturing year and a really good manufacturing year. If we start to see demand. I don't think it's going to come from Europe, but we're beginning to see signs of real life in places like India. Uh, and if we do a lot more business with the Indians, that's going to have a really powerful impact uh, on our export numbers. Uh, Chris, uh, I'd like to go back to the I'd like to go back to the manufacturing aspect that we were talking a moment or so ago. Uh, you know, we have a lot of reshoring going on and nearshoring going on, and uh, we're, we're short of uh, the, the gray hairs are leaving, uh, either feet first or heads up, whichever. Um, the problem that I see, and we're hearing it, and I know you are as well, the 600,000 jobs in manufacturing that are available right now, and uh, the millennials are 
they're still not into it. They have we're we're trying to get them to think cool and sexy, and it's just not uh, working yet to the extent that uh, these jobs will be fulfilled. And we're additionally we're looking to deport about three million people that came to this country that are looking to uh, find a job and have a better life. And you know, it sounds like we're in a bit of a conflict with ourselves. And our and our our two party system is a little confused, I think, in what they should be doing or not doing in terms of uh, helping to promote the the country. So, uh, not to get on a whole political thing, which we don't generally do. What's what's your thinking on um, the, my last three minute statement? <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm in complete agreement with you that we don't have anything approaching a comprehensive manufacturing outlook. Um, I mean, a good example is that tucked within that Senate bill that just passed was a provision to spend about $300 million on setting up uh, research institutions to help manufacturing. This is something that Obama came up with several years ago and wanted to spend a billion dollars on. The idea was to sort of match up with what the Germans have with the Fraunhofer Institutes. But if you ask the manufacturer, they're like, okay, that's that's fine. We don't mind having help with R&D. That makes perfect sense. Can you deal with labor first? Can you deal with the tax code first? Can you deal with infrastructure first? Can you do something about the regulatory environment that we operate in? It's it's kind of like, you know, somebody's house is burning down and you come across the street with a plate of cookies and say, okay, once it's down and you have no place to live and you're starving, have a sugar cookie. And it's like, okay, could could you help me put the freaking fire out first before, you know, offering me the cookies? And I think that that's, that's the critical issue is that we have, we have jobs that can't be filled because we don't have the people qualified to take them. If we can just figure out a way to move manufacturing to the basements of parents' homes, then we have the millennials. Um, <laughs> so that's the goal, is you know, make press breaks small enough that it fits in the den. Um, so it, it's, it's really almost mind-numbing, because it's the sort of thing that has to be coordinated up to a point, but you don't really want it directed. You just basically, I guess what it comes down to is if you can get out of the way of the manufacturer and the entrepreneur, they know what to do. They know how to train their people. They know how to run their operations. They know how to do 90% of what they do. The challenge, and it goes back to changes that were under being made 20, 30 years ago, the National Federation for Independent Business, did a survey back in the 80s that asked how much time a business owner spent on their business. And back then it was 80% of the time. Today it is less than 40%. The rest of the time is spent dealing with regulations, dealing with taxes, dealing with things that have nothing to do with the business itself. And that, to me, is the critical thing. It's like it's, it's not that I want government to do something for me, or for manufacturers, just get out of the way. Quit making it harder instead of helping get something developed. So, Chris, do you have a forecast as to which one of the uh, two-party system has a candidate to get, that can do that for the up-and-coming? I, I think, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's the Whigs. Um, I think we really are going to have to hope <laughs> that the Whigs make a comeback. Um you know, both parties have their issues. There are people in Republican and Democratic circles that understand this. I think the tragedy, perhaps, is that with both parties, if you have a representative that is from a manufacturing district, either side of the, of the party line, they get it. Whether they're Republican or Democratic, they get it. The problem is that we don't have as many manufacturing districts as we used to. We're competing with suburban legislators and we're competing with rural legislators and they may or may not understand what a manufacturer is, is running into. And you can just tell from some of the comments that, that people make that they don't understand the world of manufacturing. They don't understand what happens inside those doors. 
they don't understand, you know, I listened to one guy talking about we need to expand these trade schools for the kids that aren't very bright. And it's like, Congressman, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, let me see how well you do standing in front of a computer controlled laser cutter or a set of robotic welding arms. It's like, you've got a college degree, uh, I think, but I don't know how much law really prepared you for this. And just between you and me, I don't want a lawyer fixing my car. So it, it's, yeah, you and I can soapbox on this for, I don't know, a couple, three months if we let ourselves. We've so, been uh, where, where are we getting the employees from, uh, Chris? I understand that we may be onshoring uh, talent from lots of countries overseas. Yeah, I mean, I think that'll be the trend. It has been in the past. So whenever we have needed skilled workers, we have tended to get them from somewhere else. And I think we'll be seeing some of this happen again. We already see a certain amount of this taking place from Latin America, both in terms of workers coming here, but also in terms of onshoring, but really nearshoring, where companies are setting up in Mexico and Central America and the Caribbean. An area that we've not really started to understand all that well is Africa, because the African countries, many of them, invested heavily in education over the last 20 years, and that is beginning now to bear fruit because these kids are graduating from institutes and colleges and high schools, and, and they have advantages that a lot of the countries south of the border to the U.S. don't. I mean, you come across the border from Mexico or Latin America, you have a language issue right off the bat. Well, two-thirds of Africa speaks English. And so the countries in particular that have been training these kids are former members of the British Commonwealth, uh, British Empire. And you're beginning to see a, a fairly steady stream of people from from Ghana, from Botswana, from Kenya, from Tanzania, finding their way into the U.S. because they're skilled and, and they're people that have what we need in terms of educational background. A lot of them now are sort of senior-level engineers, doctors, technicians, but now we're starting to also see recruiting of people who are working in the manufacturing facilities uh, and who have those skills. We'll try to grow our own as well, but that's a slow process. And as you rightly pointed out, the average 20-something does not understand what a career in manufacturing looks like. Once they understand it, I think they'll be attracted. The money is good, but it's it's a long process. Their parents don't get it. Their high school counselors don't get it. Their high school teachers, their peers, you know, it's really hard to crack that, that community because we need a voice in that group somewhere. Uh, how do you uh, feel about Manufacturing Day that occurred uh, in the beginning of October as a step in that direction of educating the masses as well as educating manufacturing? I think it's absolutely great. I participated in a couple of events that were just stunning, really. I did a, a presentation in Colorado Springs, and it was the first time they had done one of these and it was basically a trade show aimed at kids. I mean, they were trying to get to the high school and, and junior colleges, and they were hoping that they would get 100, maybe 150 students. <laughs> they had over 600 kids came trooping through that trade show, and I was watching these faces, and it was like they were blown away. I mean, they had no idea how technical and how exciting this stuff was. I mean, you had an awful group of kids, more or less, born and reared on computers and gaming and all that stuff, and then they suddenly realized, wow, these machines are computers attracted. Yeah, they're, attached. yeah. and they're, they're starting they're to, the, they're, they're getting it. They're the new game. You just get to play in real life with the big game. You know, Lou's had oh, a question he's asked a, couple, he's asked a couple of guests, Chris, and that is manufacturing, you know, hovering between 11 and 12% of GDP it, where it used to be 40%. Does it have a shot to, to grow uh, up into the teens and maybe even press into the 20s anytime soon, or is it going to always languish in the 12, 11, 13% range? You know, it's really getting up into the high teens already. I mean, one of the challenges of 
figuring GDP is that it, it becomes a bit of a statistical game trying to figure out what does and does not qualify as manufacturing. For example, those that will identify manufacturing as 11 or 12 percent of GDP don't count almost all of the ancillary activity that revolves around manufacturing, where they will count all the ancillary activity that surrounds law. So people say, well, legal services provide this. Well, yeah, but you're counting everything that's connected to a law firm. You go to manufacturing, and you don't count any of the back office people. You don't count the accounts receivable clerks. You don't count the marketing. You don't count all you're counting is the guy at the machine. Well, you know, the lawyer isn't going to get too far if no one answers the phone, and no one in the manufacturing plant's going to get too far if no one's collecting bills. So when you start to look at it in a more total routine, it's around 19% and begins to creep up into those 20s. I think right now the only GDP contributor that is larger than manufacturing in the U.S. is healthcare. And granted, healthcare has a pretty commanding lead, but manufacturing is a clear number two now and is really driving a lot of other non-manufacturing sectors. I mean, the, there was a computation made a number of years ago. It should probably be updated. But every single worker that's standing at an assembly line at an auto assembly plant is supporting 13 other workers. It's the guy that sells the car, services the car, insures the car, markets the car, washes the car at the dealer. I mean, none of those people have jobs unless the guy making the car made the car. And that's something that people also have to remember is that much of what we count as service is in service to manufacturing and wouldn't exist without the manufacturing counterpart. Uh, Chris, uh, that 19%-ish number that you mentioned, uh, are there any surveys out there or documents or reports that uh, uh, support that? Because uh, everything I've been hearing is uh, 11, 12, 13, and uh, uh, it seems to be a pretty hard, fast number. So if you're seeing, if you're seeing 19, I'd sure like to see uh, yeah, anything that could support that. It basically it's coming out of the same data that's collected by Commerce Department or anybody else. It's basically just looking at how these codes are, are put together and what you actually count as part of a manufacturing operation. I mean, there's this is one of the challenges of GDP as a number. It becomes a, a very manipulable statistic because it's just a judgment call as to what you count and don't count as part of GDP. Mm-hmm. Just example, in the last several months, there's been a revision of what our national GDP consists of because we had not counted things like brand promotions, equity, you know, the, the power of brand and the power of R&D. So we refigured all the GDP numbers going back 80 years to take that into consideration, and voila, our GDP was bigger. So... One of the things that you do is you look at the Commerce Department data and you start to pull out things that are connected to manufacturing. Basically, all the, for example, the, the automotive manufacturers, the part that counts as manufacturing is the assembly. None of the rest of the stuff gets counted. So somehow the people who design and market Fords are not part of auto manufacturing. I guess the assumption is that without the car, they can still work. It's like doing what? <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. you know, if what you're marketing doesn't exist, well, then I guess you're good for late night TV. Um, so that's kind of how you get to those numbers is that you basically add in the people whose jobs are dependent on on manufacturing and are doing you know, just as an example, some of the biggest ad agencies in the country are almost completely dependent on the automotive accounts that they have. So that firm of however many people exists because of the automotive company that pays its bills. Chris, we're going to take a quick commercial break, and when we come back, I'd like to talk about capital investment, which was pretty strong in 2014, and get a feel for 
where it might go in 2015. You bet. So let, let's take a quick commercial break, and we'll be back with Dr. Chris Keel. Manufacturing Talk Radio will be right back. When you use the Premier Rewards Gold Card from American Express, the rewards points can keep on multiplying. Buy three with triple points on airfare. Buy two with double points on gas and groceries. And a single point for pretty much every other dollar you spend on the card. Then, start choosing from over a million rewards to redeem all those points. Apply today and the annual fee for the first year is on us. Call 1-800-AXP-GOLD or visit axpgold.com. The annual fee for the card is $175. See terms, conditions, and restrictions at axpgold.com. All Metals and Forge Group is an ISO 9001 AS and EN 9100 manufacturer of open die forgings and seamless rolled rings in alloy, carbon, stainless and tool steels, aluminum, copper, titanium, and nickel alloys. Visit us at steelforge.com or call 800-600-9290. Welcome back to Manufacturing Talk Radio. Chris, now that we're now that we're back on the air, I would like to talk to you about uh, capital investment. Where do you see capital investment going in 2015? It was strong in 14. Is it going to be as strong in 15? It may not be quite as strong. It's a little hard to tell, but the surveys are starting to come in suggesting that many of the companies are leaning more towards hiring people than buying machines. Uh, there was recently a survey from the Business Roundtable, which is basically the larger companies, saying that something like 30% of them were looking at capital investments, 60% were looking at actual hiring, and you're getting some of the same numbers from groups like the NFIB and, and others. There seems to be a pattern that you see over time where companies will do capital investments for two or three years, and then they'll sort of take a break as they train their workforces to use the machines that they've purchased. And then they go back to capital investment later. But we now seem to be going into a period where there's more hiring of individuals. There's other reasons for this. Partly it's the perception that there's going to be fewer people of good quality to hire, so you better mm -hmm. strike fast before the pool gets too small. But we're also seeing a little bit less in the way of capital investment for structures. One of the things that drove it last year was a lot of companies were buying new facilities or expanding new facilities because they had purchased machines. And it's one of the ironies, I think, of modern technology that a company can struggle along for 50 years in some old cinder block monstrosity that has seen better days and the people just adjust. You start bringing in robots and computers and they're like, ooh, it's icky, it's hot, it's dusty, <laughs> we're not going to work. And suddenly they have to upgrade the building because the machines are unhappy and the workers are like, seriously, you're making all these changes because the robots aren't happy? I've got a climate controlled, beautiful 69 degrees for those little robots. <laughs> I tell you what, you know, it's like, and we think we still control them. That, that's the part that really cracks me up. It's like, <laughs> now, are we going to uh, see any kind of capacity utilization problems in the in the year of 2015, or are things going to run pretty smoothly? I don't think we're going to be running into problems. I think we're finally going to get up to near normal. Uh, for the last six months, we have been bouncing around at about 79 point something as far as capacity utilization is concerned. Normal mm -hmm. is between 80 and 85. So if we can get up into that normal level, uh, we would be pretty happy. Anything over 85, you start to have bottlenecks and shortages and all that kind of stuff. But under 80, you're still dealing with a certain amount of slack capacity. We have come a long, long way from where we were 2009, uh, early 2010, because we were at 62% capacity utilization, and that was a lot of slack. So we have taken up most of that. Uh, we're almost at the point of normal, and I think we'll hit it probably pretty early next year. Chris, it, I know all of this sounds terrific for 2015, and I also know we don't have many buggy whip manufacturers left anymore. Are there any areas of the economy that are, are not going to do well? Probably the one that's going to be most 
threatened in the near term will be energy because there really is no incentive to develop new stuff while we're still trying to figure out how to deal with the supply we already have. So some of that infrastructure expansion will slow down. I think we're going to have a pretty miserable spring when it comes to agricultural machinery because this will have been a poor earning year for farmers. Uh, by mid-year, that may start to turn around if it looks like the harvests are going to be smaller and the price is higher. I think we're probably going to see a little bit of, of pullback, perhaps, on those sectors that are oriented towards Europe in particular. Um, but I think it will be made up for by growth in automotive, growth in vehicles in general, aerospace, healthcare manufacturing. I mean, as robotic as manufacturing has become, healthcare is even more so. And the sort of decentralization of healthcare has really pushed an awful lot of, of equipment out from the hospital to all these little satellite regional medical centers. And so it's the emphasis in healthcare has been to replace people with machines, and, and that's been good for that sector. Um, the other area that will be suffering, because it has been for the last five years, is anything related to public sector construction. Uh, Chris, uh, we've talked about uh, almost every major country and a lot of minor countries in the world in the last hour. Uh, we we never have spoken about Canada. How are mm-hmm. our friends to the north? Uh, they're know- doing relatively yeah, they're doing relatively well. They have the same immediate concern that we do. Canada is a very commodities driven economy, and they have been making a lot of money from oil and gas for a lot of years. They're feeling the pinch now that those prices have been declining. On the other hand. Canada's manufacturing is predominantly connected to automotive. So the automotive growth in the U.S. has been good news for Canada because the growth is basically shared between the between the two countries. So there, in general, they have benefited from the fact that it's a, a more lightly populated country and the money they do make goes further. They're still enjoying a certain amount of housing boom. The banks in Canada never got quite as crazy as they got here, and and that put them in good shape. The other thing that Canada is looking forward to, and, and this is something they thought would happen this year but hasn't, is if the housing market in the U.S. begins to recover at a substantial pace, the Canadians are a real beneficiary of that because we ship an awful lot of our lumber in from Canada. And unlike the Europeans or other countries, we build houses out of sticks. We don't build them out of stone, and the Canadians like to ship us sticks. Okay. <laughs> well, if you could do something about the weather, it might be a nice yeah. place to move. <laughs> exactly. It's like, yeah, every time I look at the weather map, it's like where it says polar vortex is right smack in the middle of Canada, but you know, with global warming, you never know. I mean, it's just you, you could be talking about Calgary as the sun and fun capital of North America. You know. One of these shows we're going to tackle uh, global warming and find out if it's fact or fiction uh, and, and also the carbon credit issue in the U.S. Uh, as we wind down to about a minute and a half here, do you have any comments on that particular subject, Chris? Well, I think the challenge with any of those kind of conversations is the complexity and the fact that We definitely know that there's been changes in the climate because there are always changes in the climate. Sometimes they're natural, sometimes they're not. The real question is how do we deal with it? Do we try to stop it or do we adapt to it? What we've done in the past is adapt. And and I think the conversation would go a lot further if we said, hey, it is what it is. You can't change the weather really. So what do you do to adjust to it? And that could be a real boon to manufacturing if the solution is a technical one. Uh, Chris, uh, I'd like to thank you very much for being on the show and uh, hope to have you back again. And I'm looking forward to that uh, survey on the 19% number. And uh, in about an hour, an hour and a half from now, our engineers will have uh, this show uh, up on our website at mfgtalkradio.com in case you haven't heard the whole show. 
And uh, again, Chris, uh, thank you very much. And uh, Tim, uh, back to you. Chris, we're going to have you back on January 20th. We look forward to that show for our listeners. Uh, and we, we certainly we appreciate having you here. It's been a lot of fun. All right, I appreciate it. We'll see you soon. All right, bye. Take care. Bye bye. Thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. You can hear our next broadcast each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at mfgtalkradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.